my journey's gone What shall I do? Johnny's gone and I'll go to Johnny's gone to Hilo 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 my Johnny's gone what shall I do Johnny's gone to Hilo. I must go down to the sea again, to the lonely sea and the sky, and all I ask is a tall ship and a star to steer her by. But a star to steer her by wasn't always enough. A tall ship might sail from Baltimore to the Bay of Biscay by the stars, but entering Dublin Bay without hazard was another matter. Three miles offshore was a dangerous sandbank, the first in a series that ran for over 50 miles down the east coast to Wexford. These banks were a hazard not just to ships using the port of Dublin, but to ships going north and south as well. In 1811, the Port Authority, in response to pressure from shipowners, mariners and merchants, established the first beacon on the Kish Bank. An old Dutch galliot was converted into a lightship and moored there. She carried three lights arranged in a triangle and, during fog, a gong was beaten by her crew. Since then, the Kish has been permanently manned. The lightship functioned with reasonable efficiency, but maintaining a permanent crew in very primitive conditions was a big problem. Morgan McStay, chief engineer to the Commissioners for Irish Lights. So it's not surprising there was an attempt to uh, replace the lightship with a pile structure in 1842. Uh, this type of pile structure was the invention of Alexander Mitchell, a blind inventor, and in fact there are a number of these around the coast of Ireland that have operated very successfully. But that attempt uh, to place the structure on Kishbank failed. It was not until 1960 that serious consideration was given to the placing of a permanent lighthouse on the bank. In the interim, the Kish light vessel had been sunk once by the mailboat and had survived at least two other bad collisions. The genesis of the new lighthouse was in a visit paid by the then chief engineer of Irish Lights to an international lighthouse conference in Washington in 1960. Desmond Martin, now retired, remembers. One of the subjects which we found to be at the top of the agenda was the high cost of operating light vessels. Light vessels normally had a crew of about 12, whereas a rock lighthouse had a crew of four. 
United States Coast Guard, who operate the navigational aids of that country, were very conscious that in the Gulf of Mexico there were literally hundreds of oil rigs. These were normally square steel platforms on four legs, and, by law, each had to be fitted with a navigation light, rather like a lighthouse. When Desmond Martin and the two commissioners for Irish lights who attended the conference with him returned to Dublin, they presented a comprehensive report on these new concepts to the board. Soon the commissioners for Irish lights began to formulate a plan for the replacement of light vessels by permanent structures. A start was to be made with the Kish Bank. The other seven, all on the east coast, would follow. The commissioners decided to appoint the London firm of consulting engineers Sir William Halker and Partners to advise them. In the event, a very open invitation to tender was issued, which did not specify any particular type of structure, and a varied mix of, I think, nine tenders was received, some in steel and some in concrete. But the one to be selected was very different to anything we had considered beforehand. The Swedish lighthouse service had replaced many of their old lights in the waters around the Swedish coast with its concrete type of structure invented by one of their own civil engineers, Robert Gellerstad. These were telescopic. They were built on land and uh, pushed into the sea, literally, off timber platforms. There's lots of timber in Sweden. And towed to sight, sunk onto the Uh, seabed and then raised to the correct height. They were in shallow water of the Baltic in 7 to 10 metres of water. The Danish firm of Christiani Nielsen, with the help of Robert Gellerstad, submitted a tender for such a concrete structure, which, however, would be many times larger than the biggest Swedish lighthouse because it would be in 20 metres of water. This was the design selected. Work on the new lighthouse commenced in the Coal Harbour in Dunleary in the middle of 1963. The next two years, until its completion in November 1965, were to be exciting and sometimes frustrating, always memorable for those associated with the Mammoth Project. Brian Maguire, now depot foreman at Irish Lights Dunleary Depot, remembers the time immediately before construction started. He used to spend considerable time on the Kish light vessel servicing the electrical equipment. He found a certain incredulity among the crew. I was uh, very good terms with the various members of the crews that came and went on it. And uh, we heard rumours and talk about uh, the possibility of a lighthouse being built on the sandbank, but of course it seemed very fanciful and, and futuristic at the time. But uh, over the years then, we we saw the Atlanta coming out quite frequently with a drilling rig out over the side of the ship, and they were taking core samples from the sandbank. And on occasions, when they'd be finished the drilling, they'd come over and take me off the lightship when my work was done and I could go ashore. 
So we were very well aware of this activity and <clears throat> looked on it with a, a sense of, of sort of fear and awe and everything else, certainly wonderment that anyone would attempt to do anything so strange as to put a, a concrete structure out into the wild seas that we were so familiar with. So at the end of the day, it was quite extraordinary for me to see uh, the ship leaving the site and a real lighthouse appearing on the same scene. Charlie O'Shea, now messenger and general factotum at the depot, worked on the construction of the new lighthouse. My first memories of the Kish was when I came to Dunleary, a man called Reg Hurst. He was a New Zealander, we call him Kiwi. And he got a gang of men and we started over in the old coal quay, there in the, in the corner of the old coal quay where the slip was, and we went about building the base for it. It was the greatest thing that hit on Leary at the time was the guys to work because the money and the hours were unbelievable, the wages we were getting on it. Three times the normal week's wages for anyone we were getting. We were putting in the hours of different tides and we were getting all sorts of money. And it was great days. We'd, we'd spend up in the Harbour Bar at that time. It was the Cumberland now. But at that time we, it was the Harbour Bar and most of the money, I think, was spent up there with great sessions. The pride felt by employees at all levels in Irish Lights is expressed by Fred Kay, now secretary of the organisation. It was a nice feeling at the time to be associated with an organisation which was involved in such a, a project, an engineering project, that caught the interest and imagination of the public to such a degree because it helped to bring the activities of Irish Lights very much to the minds of people who up to that time virtually had no uh, knowledge or indeed great interest in uh, what happened the lighthouse service or, or who ran it or what it was about. The present chief executive of Irish Lights, Mel Boyd, was an engineering student at Trinity in 1963. He remembers going out regularly to Dunleary to see the work in progress. In retrospect, it was a very brave decision. Um, it was the very early days, really, in the offshore industry, and relatively little was known about wave conditions and the problems of stabilising offshore structures. There were snags along the way, and some near disasters. Neil Totworthy, an engineer with Irish Lights, recalls how some of those problems were overcome. When we first mooted uh, a structure for the Kish, we knew very, very little about the bottom of the sea. Uh, we thought that we were going to put great steel legs down into the sand, and for this we wanted to know how much sand was covering, how much sand cover there was out on the Kish bank. A contractor was employed to do test borings, but he found that the tide rip was far too great for him for his conventional apparatus. So eventually, down in the lighthouse depot, we produced a 70-foot-long tube on which we mounted um, a platform. It was really like a, a flagpole, if you like, with a platform on top of it. It had flotation tanks, which, were, which enabled it to be floated out. And on site, it was made vertical and stayed off. And the drilling apparatus was put up on... on uh, top of the gadget and we drilled away. Neil's invention served the company well. He was equally creative in devising a method to measure the tide race on the Kish Bank. If you put 
a large object down on a sandy bed, the, the tide can scour away the sand and the whole structure could become unstable. So we wanted to know how, the, uh, how strongly the tide flowed, not at the top, but down at the bottom, at, at depth. So we made inquiries as how this might be measured, and we were told how to do it. Now, this is really high technology stuff. We were told what you need is a baby's bottle, some bird's jelly deluxe, a bit of string, a cork, and a brick. So we registered some astonishment at this, but we were told how to go about it. First of all, you put the birds, you half fill the, the bottle with bird's jelly deluxe. You drill a hole down through the centre of the cork, put the string through it, and bung up the, the, the bottle. You tie the other end of the string to the brick, so that when the thing is immersed in water, the baby's bottle will float upside down. You then go out in your boat with a bucket of hot water. You put the bottle into it so the jelly once again melts. You tie a heating line to the, to the assembly, throw it over, it hits the bottom, and you wait there for about 10 minutes. You then pull up the bottle. Now, the bottle has been in a strong tide and is leaning over at a peculiar angle. But the jelly has solidified to that angle, and all you have to do is to measure the angle. There's a further refinement. If you want to know in what direction the tide is, you float a little compass needle in the jelly. So you have not only strength, but you have direction as well. Charlie O'Shea remembers the greatest setback of all. And the first base eventually was finished. And we were over in the Porty, we happened to be over in the Porty Ridge, first of the foreman, Jack Musto, and a young engineer called John Mulligan. And myself were, were celebrating the birth of John Mulligan's first child in the Porty. And when we came back over after having a few jars, there was all sorts of panic. The base had risen after the bottom, before its time really, and uh, there was very little could be done about it at the time, and eventually when she was, with the, with the motion of the waves and that, the base actually cracked, that was the, it should have been, the original plan was when she lifted off the bottom, was to take her out straight away into deeper water, but she wouldn't hit the bottom, and uh, give her a chance to, to settle. But the first, when we got it, we took it to the end of the quay then, and the old base was used as a platform to build a new quiche base on it. And they started it at the end of the coal quay. When the construction work was finished in 1965, that cracked base was towed to Greystones, where it now forms a breakwater at the entrance to the little harbour. When the outer structure was nearing completion, there was another, a different kind of visitor to the site in Dunleary Harbour. This was Jack Roach, the man who had the unique honour of being appointed first principal keeper on the new lighthouse. 
He had served on lighthouses all round the coast, Bailey, Tusker, Wicklow Head, Rathlin and Eagle Island. However, when I went up to Dunleary to see it, when she was building, I got a setback when I saw this lighthouse. Part of it, the part I saw was only about nine or ten inches thick. When I was used to lighthouses, about eight feet thick. There was an unprecedented public interest in the work. Another thing I remember when we were building the, the base over in the coal key, the old coal key, there was that many people coming down to have a look at the job. And of course, there was a seven-day-a-week job. We were working Saturdays and Sundays, and especially on a Sunday, there was a lot of people that come down. That he built a stand with scaffolding and boards, and for people to be able to get up and have a look at it without coming down the quay for to get in the way of dumpers or cranes or anything that was working alongside the quay. And you had a, an audience there practically all day while you were working there, from people coming and going. They were that interested in the type of work that was going on. There was nothing like it in Dunleary before. Then when the main structure was completed, there was a celebration. Adjourned to Walter's pub, and uh, the company threw in a few pounds. It was the biggest order a man ever got. I think there was 40 points called for in one go, and uh, we all had a great night there. And then we had a bit of a club going, and we used to throw in a few bob every week. And what we had at the end of the time, the company put the same amount in, and we had a big dinner up in the Victor. It was a very great success. We had a great night in it. It was, it was a bit of social thing about the case as well as, as just being an ordinary job. And, uh, of course, it was unusual. By June 30th, the divers had finished their work on the Kish Bank. At six o'clock in the evening, in a calm sea, two tugs slowly towed the lighthouse to its location. Pleasure boats crowded the harbour and hundreds lined the shore from Dunleary to Dockey to watch the strange convoy edge out to sea. And it was really quite a gala occasion when uh, the structure was finally towed out. There were uh, hordes of uh, the general public all around the harbour and right out to the East Pier uh, to see it go. The tower in its lowered uh, position was towed out to sight as I recall, it left the harbour about um, six o'clock in the evening. And the, the senior partner of Halcrows had a, owned a yacht, which was in Fort William in Scotland. He brought it over to Dunleary, and I and um, some of the uh, Irish lights people went out in that yacht and slept overnight there so that we could see the placing in the morning. The um, lighthouse was eventually lowered onto its prepared site and uh, the tower was raised uh, by simply simple device of flooding the inner chamber with water. So it floated up. It was then anchored in the raised position 
and the whole base and surround of the tower was filled with sand. She went out, I think, the 10th of July, and of course we were all on our going out, and there was two tugs towed her out, called, one called a cruiser and one called a flying mist. And I happened to be downstairs with a chap named Matt Rogerson and Jay Bourne, and this Lloyd's, this man from Lloyd's had rolled up umbrella and bowl a hat, he was a non-deroider, the insurance man, and we were down below having our tea. And we came alongside the quiche bank, and didn't she hit the quiche bank? And there was a bit of a upsurge where she kind of gave a bit of a tilt. Well, you never seen anyone moving as fast as that Lloyd's engine, as that Lloyd's underwriter. He was up the stairs two or a time before any of us, and he was about ten years older than us all. From then until her fitting out was completed in early November, there was a constant movement of workmen to and from the quiche. We were out there for oh, quite a couple of months. I remember coming in in the evening. One evening we were coming in on the Strangard and we saw the smoke in the sky and we were trying to figure out where it was and one fellow was saying it's the church and the other lads were saying no, it's the post office. And then when we got in, the fire brigades were all around the church was on fire, St. Michael's Church. Liam Crean, an electronic technician, worked on the new lighthouse immediately prior to its commissioning. Sometimes tides prevented necessary provisions from being landed. The trawler had uh, brought out provisions. They were really provisions for the following week for the people who were working out there contractors and then were fed on, on site. So um, there were efforts then made to get the provisions from the trawler onto the quiche, which would normally be a, a, just a pass-the-box. Normally, in fact, came out in, in just cardboard cartons from the local supermarket. So the only way of getting the, the provisions onto the lighthouse were by literally throwing them. And uh, I have abiding memories of seeing large joints of beef floating off in the tide, people looking at them with hungry eyes and seeing this, just the, the, the weight was such that when the, the goods were thrown, they just didn't uh, manage to, to get as far as the kitchen. They went off to the sharks or whatever was in the vicinity. So. And so came to a successful end the building of what is still the most uniquely designed lighthouse in the British Isles. And despite the heavy hazardous work carried out in all weathers, there was not a single serious accident. And... In fact, the commissioning operation took place on the 9th of November at lighting up time, uh, which would be around probably 5 o'clock in the evening. Uh, as soon as the light appeared from the lighthouse, the one of the other Irish lights tenders, which was standing by the light vessel, took it in tow and towed it into Dunleary Harbour. And that was the end of the Kish light vessel, which had marked the Kish bank for something well over 150 or 160 years. But to the end, the gremlins had been at work. As the actual switching over from lightship to lighthouse, Liam Crean remembers... We had the late uh, President Erskine Childers out for, for the big occasion, 
I think he was Minister for Transport and Power, or somehow involved anyway in that line of things. He was out for the setting of the lighthouse into service, officially, and um, a lot of other dignitaries obviously with him, and they were all assembled in the mess room, and uh, a small commissioning switch, which obviously operated other various power systems around the lighthouse, and the idea was that he would at a predetermined time, and it had to be fairly critically timed, because the Krish lighthouse was taken over from the Kish lightship, so timing of radio beacons and so on was critical. But the appropriate time, he was given the signal to, having said his few words of inauguration, he was to operate the switch, which he duly did on the appointed time. And um, instead of all the navigation systems coming on, and the whole lighthouse coming to life, the, the reverse happened. Everything stopped dead, all lights went out, and... There was absolute silence because the engine which was supplying the power down in the base of the lighthouse stopped dead in its tracks. There were a lot of red faces, obviously, uh, some from the exertion of running up and down the tower to establish what had happened and some just from simple embarrassment. But what seemed like hours to people who were suffering embarrassment probably was just seconds, so uh, the matter was recovered, but uh, it certainly was... Uh, an amusing incident, and when people recovered their wits, it was a source of, of mirth and jollity for the for the afternoon. But I think on that occasion was it probably was the only time there was any serious uh, that problem. So the new tower was complete and now operational. Jack Roach, the first principal keeper, now eighty-six and twenty-one years in retirement, remembers. After Jardier, we had a very strong storm from the south-southeast. And by gosh, we we were trembling. She wasn't properly grouted, and the vibration was terrible, terrible, especially at low water. And why was that? Well, she was showing a high side then, and when the seas had break against this high side, the vibration started. But when we got up the high water, not a problem. The sea just broke and right ran around it. You wouldn't feel it. John de Courcy Island was secretary of the Dunleary lifeboat at the time. It was a great change for us in Dundee Lifeboat Station when the lighthouse was towed out to the Kish Bank and replaced the lightships, which we had been used to for, of course, a very long time there. He decided that the lifeboat's next exercise would be a trip to the new Kish to look closely at the structure and establish exactly what problems they might have in the event of having to take a man off. And it was one of the filthiest days I remember. One, I think, of the only days, and I can remember only two others, but this was the, the most dramatic of them, when the whole of the interior of Dundee Harbour seemed to be breaking out of the harbour into Scotland's Bay. It was a ferocious gale, a storm force wind in effect, and <clears throat> the sea was sweeping across these piers. So it was a Saturday when we usually had the exercises and I said as I approached the lifeboat station, well, they don't have to go, they're all volunteers, so perhaps they won't be there. But I turned, when I turned up, there they were already. So I thought to myself, well, this is great, they've all turned up. So we embarked 
and I thought, well, John Jenkins will take us down the coast and get what he can down Dorky Sand and out into Killiney Bay. Not a bit of it. Out he went, straight out to sea. And it was abominable. <laughs> there were two of the lifeboat crew, which is rare enough, got sick. And we got within a few yards of the Kish looked at this formidable looking tower which uh, was of course quite new except we'd seen it uh, in building but to see it in its proper element with the sea breaking around it and halfway up it was quite an experience and uh, John took his measurements with his eye he had a very good eye and uh, said, well, I think if we had to, we could manage it, though I would pray that it wouldn't be a day like this. John paid tribute to the lighthouse keepers and their endless vigil. I can think offhand of at least half a dozen really serious events that occurred in the area of the Kish, where had the lighthouse keepers not been there, lives could very well have been lost. And this is our great worry for the future. What do we do when there's nobody watching? Jack Roach took such pride in his job as principal keeper and was so assiduous in his duties that in the years he spent there before his retirement, the Kish became known as Roach's Tower. We had all kinds of facilities. I could talk home, just pick up the telephone and talk to my wife and family. We had splendid accommodation. I had more or less a flat to myself, which consisted of was known there as the larder. There was everything in it, all kinds of lockers for vegetables, food, all that. There was also a deep freeze into it. You could put a bullock into it. There was a fine fridge on it. And the accommodation was splendid. There was a, a lovely kitchen that any housewife would be proud of, would be delighted with it. Then we had a dining room with everything that was necessary there. Then there was the lounge, fitted out with lovely armchairs, fine settee, television, wireless, you name it, carpets and all that. It was all there. And then there was an office with all kinds of office equipment, lockers for this, that and the other, writing desk and several other things necessary. Then there was a bedroom, splendid bedroom. A long-retired lighthouse keeper, D.J. O'Sullivan, naturalist, journalist and poet, has written a poem called Kish. A lone tower. The lighthouse rises out of a sandy ocean bed and the man who walks the balcony in prescribed circuit round and round counts the railings uprights, cross pieces to pass his hours of watch away. With never room to make a change but pace and stop 
retracing pace along a single narrow track, not side to side or to and fro, confined within the murex range, a type of roofless iron cage. While here and there, with beady eyes, the grey gulls watch him move around. In disdain, spread their wings or swim, free as the tidal currents run. The choice is theirs, he has no choice, impounded by the catwalk's rim. Well, Jack Roach walked that catwalk's rim for many years. I did four years on her, retired from it, and I really enjoyed it because we had any amount of shipping around it and I was very interested in shipping. When I was on the Kish, I made an awful lot of friends. Ships got to know me, although I never met their captains or officers. They'd call me up on the, the radio telephone, yard away from there, and... Uh, same when I was on Eagle Island, the radio telephone meant an awful lot to us. But I met, as I say, I met all, I talked to all kinds of men. Often, I remember one time talking to a man down in the Bay of Biscay. That's a long way away from us. I talked to him. He was bound then to some of the East Coast, uh, 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 English East Coast ports with phosphates. And that's only one of many. One of many. Christmas on lighthouse duty can be a lonely time. And Jack was unlucky with his last few Christmases on Kish. One bad thing about my time on the Kish, I got very few Christmases, just one, the last year I was on it. But uh, we made the best of it. We generally had of course, all the Chris usual Christmas fare, the turkey and the ham, the pud, the Christmas cakes, etc., etc., and actually drop of the crater. And we made the best of it. We would feel a bit lonely, but when I had been that many Christmas away from home, the way I looked at it, every day I was at home was a Christmas day for me. And during uh, the evening, after we got our tea, we'd have a sing-song with uh, the lightshipmen down along the coast. We knew them all, of course, by talking to them. So we'd have a bit of a sing-song. People often wonder how a structure like the Kish can survive out in the middle of the Irish Sea sitting basically on a bed of sand. Michael Taylor, civil engineer with Irish Lights. And the position is that the original design was a very clever design. It was, as everyone knows, I think now it was on a telescopic uh, principle, but it had a very wide base, uh, over 100 feet wide, and this meant that the pressure of the um, concrete on the sand is really very light because it's spread over such a wide base. But at the same time, the sand bed was prepared before the kish was positioned. There was gravel put out and very carefully levelled by divers. And then the structure was floated out and sat on this. Now, over the years, uh, we have watched the um, sand bank very carefully and some years the sand built up around the, the base of the Kish and in other years there was very heavy erosion uh, maybe after a storm um, some very wild stormy uh, winters and we discovered that after about 15 years of, of monitoring the, the seabed 
that there were two very large holes had appeared, one on the north and one on the south, and of the order of 14 to 16 feet deep. So obviously something had to be done about this because they, they would have eventually meant that the quiche would have been undermined. And the solution for us was quite an easy solution, really, and that was gravel was dredged up from the coddling bank further down in the Irish Sea and brought by hoppers and barges and placed into these holes. And because the uh, material was larger than the original sand, uh, it has stayed there very well. We've looked at it again over the years. Every two years we carry out underwater surveys and at this stage the there's very slight erosion but it's it's only quite small. Now one of the other problems uh, with regard to the kish are the, are the waves and the kish was originally designed for 45 foot waves uh, which luckily we've had very few of, if any. Uh, it's hard to measure them, obviously, but I would guess that the maximum wave we've had so far is of the order of about 30 feet. But looking at the design um, in the light of knowledge over the last 25 years, the, the waves have now been calculated as possibly uh, reaching 55 feet. Now that's an increase of over 20%. And even under those conditions, we're very happy that the structure is well able to survive even a, a wave height of 55 feet. And this is because the original design was, was, was so well executed and maybe a little conservatively at the time, but this has paid off now with as I say, these increased waves. The the one element that we have to look at over the next year or two is that around the base of the, the kish there is a layer of heavy rock armouring, as they call it, large boulders up to one tonne weight, of course, underwater, which no one can see. But they're the doing uh, an invaluable piece of work because they protect the base from the the forces of the of the waves and in in the storm conditions and they have over the years over the 25 years they've settled down into the sand so it's a question now as i say over the next year or two of bringing in additional rock uh, again by barges and uh, dropping it around the base this rock would probably come from somewhere like arklow wicklow granite large one ton uh, boulders and this would be placed around the base and having done that and as I say monitoring the bed levels every two years or so we keep an eagle eye on the structure uh, I'm certainly very happy that the Kish lighthouse is is well safeguarded against any um, uh, damage from the from the elements it has been uh, a very successful installation and has operated without problems over a 25-year period. Morgan McStay, Chief Engineer, Irish Lights. And we felt it prudent at the end of this period to have a full structural inspection carried out by Sir William Holcrow Limited to discover if, in fact, uh, the structure was standing up and... Uh, we wanted also to establish an estimate of its future life. Now that 
structural inspection has been completed and uh, the Kish has a clean bill of health. And we think it, with uh, reasonable maintenance, will continue for a hundred years, perhaps, or more. Looking out at the Kish, it seems just a tiny tower, a speck in the vast, moving maw of ocean. Mel Boyd, chief executive Irish Lights, explains how wrong that perception is. It's actually a ten-storey building. Very few people, I think, would appreciate just how large a structure it is. It's ten storeys filled with engineering equipment and living quarters for the keepers. And um, in addition, there's storage for oil, water, radio equipment, helicopter landing pad on the top, and boat landing at the bottom. Sadly, the Kish too will be the victim of the inexorable process of automation. We are now at a new watershed in the uh, history of the Kish because we are currently in the process of automating this lighthouse. Uh, this year we are designing the, the equipment and uh, specifying it and procuring it and next year we'll be installing the equipment in the lighthouse tower and converting it to automatic operation. We'll be fitting a new light the existing electric fog signal and Raycon will remain in operation, but we will be removing the radio beacon that has operated there for many years and relocating it on the Bailey Lighthouse, which is at the north end of the entrance to the port. So the Kish, after a long history, will finally be demanded at the end of March in 1992. <laughs> My Johnny's gone forevermore. Johnny's gone. Charlie O'Shea has good memories. He will always remember the building of the Kish as a very special job. And every time I pass or when I go into Hollyhead, I, I always, my grandchildren say to me, Granddad, didn't you build the Kish? Of course, I always say I did, did. <laughs> what?